Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Ravi Agarwal and host Michael Lerner. You can download a PDF of the photos presented in this conversation at tns.commonweal.org. Ravi Agarwal, welcome to the new school at Commonweal and to our Omega Project. Such a delight to have you here. Thank you. We were just talking about how far back our connection goes. What is your first memory of you? You were involved uh, as an environmental campaigner. We were involved in the founding of Healthcare Without Harm and the founding of the International Persistent Organic Pollutants Elimination Network. Uh, your NGO was a key partner in, in all those things. Uh, how far back does our connection go? If my memory serves me right, then um, I was here for the first Healthcare Without Harm meeting, the mm-hmm. formation meeting. I remember you in this very premise, mm-hmm. maybe a different building. Uh, and then there was this connection you made for me with... Um, with the people from the Papaji Ashram who then were trying to clean the Ganga. Yes. And they landed at my office and we had a long relationship with them. I have a long relationship oh, with them. Uh, 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 and then, uh, of course, they started Organic India then. But uh, off and on, we met, I think, at least 12 years back. I think I came to your house for dinner. That's but right. you've been a kind of a mysterious presence throughout the environmental health movement. Mm. You were always there, even not possibly in person. Mm -hmm. And through Cheryl, because Cheryl was physically there, she's... My wife, Cheryl Patton. Your wife, Cheryl Patton. Who's here today and a longtime friend of yours. Yes. And Cheryl was directly involved in activist work. And she still is, I think. Yeah, she was the Northern co-chair of IPEN when you won the first global treaty on toxic chemicals. Yeah. yeah. So it all came together. So my our Toxic Slinks early work on medical waste, which started in 1996, sort of invited, that work invited me to participate in the first Healthcare Without Harm meeting. And then the environmental health agenda, which was actually very small at that time, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in global non-US terms, it was a tiny bit of what anybody did uh, because most, most civil society organizations worked on forests and biodiversity and non-urban issues. But environmental health was just coming up then. And I think, uh, I, I think that that was the time it, start, it triggered off and these fantastic organizations like Healthcare Without Harm, Gaia, IPEN, all have the same kind of beginnings in the in the uh, middle to late 90s. Hmm. Now, were you involved with Gary Cohen, one of the co-founders with Charlotte Brody and with us of Healthcare Without Harm? Were you involved in the Bhopal disaster as well or not? I was uh, involved only later uh, mm-hmm. because uh, that disaster happened in 1984. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working for a tech company then. Mm-hmm. I was an engineer. 
And um, uh, we all knew about it, but I wasn't really involved in it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't on my horizon. Mm -hmm. uh, later on, uh, I got quite close to Satyu uh, for some time. And Satyu being, Satyu being one of the key leaders in the Bhopal movement mm -hmm. in India. Mm -hmm. uh, the story goes that he was traveling on a train, uh, he was doing a PhD and the disaster happened and he dropped everything and he stayed on. And he became one of the key leaders uh, in that. So for a while we were close. Uh, and then of course Gary, Gary who had another connection to India because from what I know, what if I remember what he told me that Gary was going through a change inside himself and something had not worked here. He was going to India like a seeker and Carol, his wife was there and I think Asha was not born or was going to be mm -hmm. born, a small child. So Gary and I had that kind of connection. Uh, and then of course I met them here. That meeting I remember uh, in Bolinus was like a Zen-like meeting because I'd never attended a meeting like this before. Both Gary and Charlotte had this kind of halo around their heads, you know. And uh, Gary had that, has that persona, in a sense. So uh, there were kind of connections which I did not expect that they be made, and they were made. And I think I was drawn into it because of the kind of people who were part of this. Mm. There was something which was, of course, changing the material world into a more sustainable material world. But what was driving was a spiritual energy behind them. So the belief that this was uh, a mission, uh, you know, and it was different from the kind of NGO, the kind of work uh, which was happening in India, which was very kind of politically oriented in terms of left politics or uh, you know, extreme left politics, you know. So uh, it was these forces at play. And then this was to me more, which resounded more with me uh, in terms of how I was and how I felt about why I wanted to do some things. Hmm. I, I'm so moved to be here together. We, uh, Charles invited you to come out and... Um, you were just finishing a, a meeting with IPEN, the International Pops Elimination Network, and um, we hadn't seen each other for some time. And uh, we just both had this experience uh, with Charles, just of a, such a deep connection, you know, so the, this conversation is taking place against that background. I want to uh, start um, by providing our listeners and viewers with um, a brief biography of you, which actually, interestingly, does not focus on your environmental activism on your website. Um, uh, uh, it, I'm going to read excerpts of it. Ravi Agarwal has a longstanding interdisciplinary practice as a phot photographer-artist, environmental campaigner, writer and curator. Bridging the divide between art and activism, he addresses the entangled questions of nature and its future using photography, video, text, and installation. 
His works range from the long documentary to the conceptual and performative, and he has regularly published photo books and diaries, Ambient Seas in 2016, Extinct in, 20, in 2009, Immersion Emergence in 2006. The book Down and Out, which we'll be talking about, was a first major photographic work on migrant labor in India. His work has been shown at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Belgrade, at the Biennale of Havana, uh, uh, at Yinchuan, at Kochi, Sharjah, Indian Highways, Document 11, besides solo and group exhibits. He has curated large Indo-European public art projects, Yamuna Elbe Twin Cities Project in 2011, Embrace Our Rivers 2018, and was photography curator for the Serendipity Arts Festival 2018 and 19. He is the curator of uh, New Natures, A Terrible Beauty is Born, to be held by the Goethe Institute in Mumbai. Uh, Actually, that must have taken place already. It did. Yeah, right. In In January 2022. He's currently working on a new photo book and multi species art project. I may mispronounce this, Samtal Jamin Sambai Jamir, supported by the Prince Klaus Foundation. Ravi has served on several important art and photography juries, installed an art and ecology program to support emerging practitioners. His work is in several private and public collections. He's edited a number of books. I won't go through them all. And alongside He is the founding director of the leading environmental NGO, Toxics Links, and has been the recipient of the United Nations International Forum for Chemical, what is the S? Safety. Safety, International Forum for Chemical Safety Award for Chemical Safety, as well as being an Ashoka Fellow. So I wanted to read all of that to provide our listeners and um, viewers with a sense of um, the scope of your work. And not only is it extraordinarily wide and deep, but I have to say it's spiritually profound in the true meaning of the word spiritually profound. Uh, To me, you have found in photography an art that speaks to us at the nonverbal level of direct perception. And uh, you have chosen as your central theme, um, a theme that is central for me and for Commonweal, which is life in the Anthropocene. It's life in the global polycrisis. Mm-hmm. And it is the expression of that uh, through both art and activism, through both uh, the perception, the recording, uh, the the creation of art that speaks to us at a nonverbal level across political divides. So this place where you provide depth perception of what is actually happening to nature and to humanity in the Anthropocene, the Anthropocene meaning that the time of the age of uh, 
where humans dominate the planet. And in our language, in the time of the global poly crisis. So I just wanted to start there. And um, with that introduction, to ask you to, first of all, respond in any way that you choose, but also to take us directly into your work. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's hard to respond to all this nice <laughs> things you say about me. Uh, uh, but I think let's start with the work let's that we carry on. Right. So I'd like to, but thank you for saying that. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'd like to just take you through a very uh, important body of work for me, uh, which was done between 1996 and 2000. It was uh, uh, after my first solo show, uh, which was a lot to do, it was called, it was called The Street View and a lot to do with uh, people living on the street in India. And, you know, since I was 13, the camera has been my constant companion. So I sort of, uh, it follows what I do. And I was invited by uh, uh, an anthropologist, a very, very well-known anthropologist, uh, Jan Bremen, uh, who had done extraordinary work for 40 years on migrant labor in India. And uh, he published a book called Footloose Labor, which is uh, highly acclaimed. But essentially, uh, he asked me, he invited me and he said, would you like to do a book with me? And as a young photographer, of course, I would like to do a book with him. And I said, of course, we'll do a book together. And I said, he said, I have no money. I said, we'll do the book, then we'll see. So uh, I spent the next two and a half years amongst some of the most impoverished poor people in one way uh, uh, in India. And in another way, some of the richest people you one could spend time with. And uh, we were looking at a specific part of India, which is South Gujarat, a place in the near Surat and the hinterland around it. Uh, and his, his book was mostly about why people move from where they were born, looking for work, and what are their lives about. So we followed uh, people from the people who moved from the villages to the city to different kinds of work, and we covered specific kinds of work like uh, diamond cutting, uh, sand mining, um, sugarcane, so various kinds of labor forms I followed. And Jan took me to the first visit there, uh, and then I was pretty much on my own. But what it meant for me to do that book was to really firstly feel comfortable there. And I think the reason Jan invited me was because when he saw my street work, he found me really comfortable on the street with people, and I was. So I, uh, you know, and the, the issue when you're shooting people who are from a different class is that um, uh, the image uh, image has to say something which is more than just empathy, more than just it certainly shouldn't be patronizing. But so you have to feel uh, with the image in a sense, and the, the image becomes secondary to your to your connection to that place. So I made incredible friends there, uh, and the reason the book happened in the first place was because the workers allowed me into their lives. And so there are images there of me shooting in, in sweatshops where people are cutting uh, Belgian diamonds, 
by hand and uh, through rudimentary machines. But you have no, nobody can access those places, like sweatshops. But the workers used to call me at 11 o'clock at night and saying, our supervisor is gone, please come now and take our picture. So it was really at their invitation that this book got completed. But it's also important to know that uh, 90% of labor in India is migrant and less than 8-9% is unionized. So these are outside any kind of protective framework. They just move from one place to another look, looking for work. So what happens to child labor? What happens to their education? Uh, what happens to their, to their health? Uh, these are all secondary questions, you know. And this is the labor on which development uh, happens. This is, the, this is the shoulder to the wheel of India's growth story. And I think many other places growth story. But they have almost no relationship to, to the nation state. So they get up, they're looking for work. You ask them who the prime minister is. So any, they have no clue. They, they don't vote. So they're citizens, but they're not citizens in a sense. But the other thing which really struck me, uh, which was life-changing. So this was life-changing for me because before that, you could only know, these, know people not like you as poor, that these are the poor. But when you go to them, you don't think of the word poor. You think of the word people and you think of the word community. And uh, then the third word which they bring to you is the idea of dignity. And that they worked 15 hours a day on a sugarcane field, cutting sugarcane. And in the end, and end of the day, they came to the, to the labor camp and they made their rotlas, which was the big Indian bread made of wheat and made some had some onions or some... And they would start singing. And they would sing before they went to sleep. And, uh, or when I was shooting in an industrial area. So I remember one incident when I was shooting in an industrial area and this man in a tea shack called me out and he said, what are you doing here? I told him, I had a letter from the university. So, I mean, the only way you can photograph anything there is by being completely honest. And he said, so how will your photograph change my life? I said, probably won't change your life, but you'll get to tell some story. I said, I don't know what, what's going to happen, but I'm out here, I'm on assignment, this is what I'm doing. And he, he said that, you know that factory across the street? I said, yeah. He said, I've made my shack here because that factory kicked me out because I was three days late because my mother had died. Then I went to the union and the union said they would help me. They took money from me, they took money from them and I'm out on the street. So the whole system uh, abandoned me. And he said, I'm just waiting for the day when I'm alone with the guy who owns it and I'm gonna break his legs. Mm. So whether he would or would not, but that was a sentiment. And you get the sense that, that there are people with any person with agency, with power, uh, and they have been wronged by the very people who said they will not be wronged by. So this, this body in, in flesh and blood, the toiling body, which I think is a really important part of how I think about life, changed my whole work in Toxic Slink or any environmental work I did. And even today, uh, I am deeply sensitive to the idea that the word environment cannot be seen away from everything else. 
It is not a category which is you can bring on outside of human life and social life. And in some ways, it goes to the problem of the Anthropocene, where the word environment has become a technical category, where the only way you can move, like the word nature, become a technical category. Only way you can move it forward is by doing something to this uh, homogeneous thing called the environment, where actually it's not not true at all, in, in a sense. And, you know, something, if you like, we can talk about. But before we do that, I'd like to show you some images oh. from this book. Okay. So this is an image uh, which is also the cover of the book uh, uh, of people waiting for work. So every morning in almost any city in the country, there'll be a labor chalk, a labor square, where people will just come in and just wait. And some of them are skilled carpenters, skilled plumbers, uh, and they wait for somebody to come and give them work, take them for the day on a daily wage. And uh, these are the kind of work images you see, you know, of head loaders. Uh, this is a picture of, uh, of a, of a, of a uh, labor union office. And on the back, you see a little portrait of Ambedkar. Ambedkar, as you know, was the leader of the Dalits, the lower caste in India, and also the father of the Indian modern constitution. Uh, so you see that this whole sort of uh, uh, framing of the union in terms of this idea of social justice, and you see Buddha. And, but when you talk to the laborers, you find that it's not a fair exchange. It's, it's always there's something going on, which is which they're negotiating both sides. And these are images you probably could still see this outside a railway station. The whole families come in uh, waiting for to move into the city. And um, I was also I also learned that uh, for every family who gets to work in the city, even as a laborer, there's a line of people outside waiting to enter the city because it's a fortunate who enter the city for work because they have uh, some kind of relationship with a family member or some kind of skill which allows them to enter the city. So it's a privileged worker who gets to work in the city. Others just waiting to get in. And it's, what it showed to me is something really which I carry very strongly with me, that the layers and layers and layers of human hierarchies there's no stopping. They just go all the way down. So, you know, there's new work being done on caste and nature by some scholars, uh, one of the very important scholars. And I asked one of them that, what about the women in these lower caste communities? He said that we're still exploring. So as you go down the power hierarchy, the impoverishment and the uh, vulnerabilities and the invisibilities increase. So maybe the Dalit person will be visible, but the Dalit woman will be completely invisible. So it completely dovetails into this idea of, you know, what happens to gender, what happens to caste, what happens to justice in this whole environmental question. Because without the environmental, without the justice question, the environmental question is just a question of a nice, beautiful picture in a sense, you know, it's a romantic question, I think. So this is a, this is a plumber waiting for work. And this is what you see that they, this is how they live. So they, when they're off work, this is the street is the home. 
inside in, behind uh, uh, the the backside of the production of a very what was then a very famous brand which was to import textiles all over Europe and I managed to get in there the camera was in a bag with a peephole inside because obviously they will not take the pictures but the workers knew I was taking pictures and uh, so these are the kind of scenes but as you can see that they're comfortable with me because I'm comfortable with them and I used to carry a pack of this beeries which are these tobacco rolled cigarettes uh, in India, I, I don't smoke, but just for the sake of offering a beery, I used to carry them around. And so you see them, so I'm not showing them any particular order. There's it's a large body of work inside the same kind of textile factory. These are people who are laying uh, uh, the road. But I'm always, always uh, struck by the body postures, you know. Uh, you can see that you can see the, the, the dignity, the human dignity uh, in, in their body posture, you know. So uh, I'm, as a photographer, I was, you know, the, it's really important what the visual language tells me, in a sense. And this, this is what I was telling you, how they would come back from work. These are sugarcane workers. They'd come back to the camp at night. This is early morning when they're getting, setting off to work again. And this, you know, this stone quarrying. And these are sort of disturbing images. You find you find pregnant women lifting bricks, children lifting bricks. And these are the bricks which are going to cities. These are the modern urbanization. This is where the bricks are being made, even today. This is in the city. He's making kite string. Uh, this is in their home. Uh, it's a particular committee, community from Orissa. It's come for work. Uh, this is uh, uh, making bricks at night, 3 a.m. in the morning, and find little girls, uh, little blurred, because I wanted to give a sense of movement, who are making... So work there is paid by production, where you have what is called peace rate. So when we think of child labor and saying, send children to school... It's a noble thought, but children are embedded in families and the family gets paid not by person, but by how many bricks they produce. So the more hands there are, the merrier it is, the more money they'll make. So when you take the child out and put the child to school, the parents don't want that because the parents want more hands to do whatever work they're doing. So when we think of, I think when you think of child labor in India or in, in the social context, we cannot take away this idea how, what is the mechanism through the wages paid, the structures which keeps child labor alive. It's not just an, that the parents are bad parents or they don't want to send their children to school. If they will not survive as a whole family in that. So when we, when we think of, uh, you know, better ways of doing things tomorrow, one thing we can say is being very moralistic about it and saying, you know, why, why are the children, parents not sending children to school? But then you discover that if they do, then they don't know what else to do. So the whole structure is keeping this whole thing there in that particular space. So it was important learning for me not to be too moralistic when I'm doing environmental work, because we, we can tend to be that, telling the world what to do without realizing what the world really is. I just want to stop on that point. 
it's important for you not to be too moralistic telling the world what to do if we don't understand what the world really is. Yes. So to me, that is such a critical point. Mm -hmm. It's that willingness to look at the world as it actually is in the Anthropocene, in the global polycrisis, without the sense that our moralisms uh, necessarily understand the full situational complex. Yes. And as human beings, as you can see, this is the same picture you saw of this man breaking the stone in that. And I went down the quarry and I I talked to him. You see, he's smiling, you know. Mm -hmm. He's not saying, oh my God, I'm doing smiling. He wants to have a beady with me. I offered him that beady. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Robbie Agarwal and host Michael Lerner. To me, I he was he was a human being, you know. He's not a worker. He's just a person, the same person, the same flesh and blood, born of of human blood, die like a human being. These are very important thoughts to me that we are all mortal beings, and uh, we have to. Mm, He's not a poor man, I'm a, I'm, I'm a less poor man. It's not that. There's another, another layer of connection. And actually, that's what constantly drives me to understand and to, that there is no, there's nothing to be higher about, you know. There's, I, I have met people whom you might call poor, some of the most wise people who have taught me a, a thing or two. So th- th- these these ways of something which which goes because in the idea of developing something you know i'm not sure we are developing or not listening enough that maybe we need to develop a bit more in a sense mm-hmm. and so this is this is what actually drives me always has made me because go to uh, and talk to people because also when you go to go to people who are who have nothing to lose anymore, there's a great honesty in who, who they are and how they talk to you. There's a very straightforwardness about life in a sense. So even today when I work with the fishing community, the reason I feel so one with them, even if I'm not uh, in an economic sense, uh, because they have almost nothing, is because. I feel they're teaching me something, you know. I'm getting so much back uh, from just every interaction. So, so you know, there's just some more images. This is a diamond picture I told you about when they invited me. And as you can see on the top of the image, there are these clothes hanging because they sleep there, they work there, everything is there. And they're cutting Belgian diamonds, you know. So, uh, I remember being in India, you just showed a picture of uh, people by a railroad track. I remember the families that live on the railroad tracks. Yeah, what what struck me when I was taking this picture, I was walking around there in the railroad track when this group of children, and what struck me was this girl, Mm -hmm. that she was not, she was a little young woman. She had seen life, probably in a brutal kind of way. I felt the way she talked to me, the way she looked at me. She wasn't this innocent child. Mm-hmm. And this loss of innocence in very early on when you're a ch- street child, you know, this comes apparent to you in a sense. And it's a, 
And, you know, we talk about child labor, but it's everywhere. What people have to, just by being born, what they have to go through just to stay alive, in a mm-hmm. sense. Asia, which is so much part of the capitalist system, of, because there is no leisure for them. It's work and off work. The moments which they're not working. Leisure is a, is, it's a dream, you know. It's the, it doesn't exist for most people. It's just breaks between work. This is Holi. So I played fest. They used to invite me for these big festivals. Holi, as you know, this festival of color in India. So they invited me there. I used to spend all my time, Diwali, these major festivals. I was there with them, photographing them, photographing, uh, photographing them and uh, being with them. So, I mean, there are lots of images, but maybe we just stop mm-hmm. here and these image things. I learned a lot about your life uh, last night before dinner. We, uh, we took a walk in Bolinas out to a, a bench overlooking the water that I like. And um, I learned from you then. And then after dinner, I asked you more about your life. And you come to this experience of your art and your focus on on migrant labor, fisher people, um, in a very interesting way. Um, and it seems to me that your father had, had a very great influence on you. He did. Could you tell <laughs> us your father's story? Yeah, but... Everybody has a parent story, and I have mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father, uh, for me, was an extraordinary person. Complicated, complex. Uh, I think as most people are. But uh, since, uh, so he, he, was a, he was a bureaucrat. He came from a poor family, uh, but mm, of a large family. And he went to school because his elder brother, uh, work to send him to school. And uh, he then uh, uh, did very well, got scholarships, uh, uh, came second in the civil services exam uh, and became a a, a gazetted officer. Started at a dollar a day. Uh, Started at a dollar a day. uh, At the bottom. uh, At the bottom and then took the exam. So he started as, as a supervisor at a dollar a day, then took the civil services exam did very well and then joined the civil service. And, you know, in India, if you join the civil service, then you have a career path open to you. Uh, But uh, he was a man of very high integrity, but a very sharp mind. And uh, for his pastime, he would solve mathematical puzzles. So if he wasn't a bureaucrat, then he would have been a mathematician. But uh, he had a very... um, um, uh, constant inner life, uh, which he which he explored to the fullest. So he, uh, when he was thirteen, uh, he became a disciple of the last living disciple of Swami, Swami Vivekanand. I still I have a picture of him. I I've never I never met him because he passed on two years before I I was born. Uh, and uh, he had a very big influence on him, uh, this gentleman. And he uh, bought a whole spiritual side, which my, f- my father was probably exploring at a very early age, to 
to his life. I mean, I remember once sentence uh, this gentleman told my father was that now that you're with me, even if you go to hell, it's my duty to get you out of there. Yeah. So this kind of spiritual support at such an early life, I think it's going to be life forming. And uh, I was a very late child. I have three sisters uh, and I was uh, the child uh, who was born because my mother desperately wanted a son. So she was uh, I'm eight or nine, nine years younger than my, my sister, my next sibling. And uh, I was born because she really desperately, so she went to every temple in the country to, to have me. And uh, she even told my father's guru that, that when will I have a son? And he said, when the time is right, you'll have a son. We expected answer, I guess, but in a sense, and there I was. And uh, uh, which also meant I had a little complicated relationship with my sister who probably felt a little displaced having this son. Just the fact that I was a son was enough to give me all the attention of the whole family and beyond, in a sense. So uh, incidentally, my sister is a, is an accomplished feminist economist. But, uh, and my other two sisters went away uh, very early on because they were much older than I am. They got married and went away. So basically my life was with my father, my mother, and my sister and I, the four people. Uh, and he, uh, uh, he was very busy in a lot of his life and I hardly got to see him. And I think I resented that a lot for a long time. And I wasn't the most studious person going on the planet, right? And my sister was always topping the university and I had no interest in topping the university. Uh, and uh, I think some of my father felt let down that I was not topping the university. But so it was. And what I did, was doing instead was I was taking photographs since I was 12 years old. He gave me his old small camera, which is, I still remember the Canon QL17. Um, and I started using that camera and it just got hold of me. I mean, it's like my world came together with the camera. And I, I threw the store out of the house. We had a big government house and we threw the store out. He was kind enough to spend thousand rupees to get me an enlarger. I made a dark room and I started printing. I taught myself everything and, and I really wanted to do cinematography. Uh, and, but as you would expect that... I said, no, please sit for this technical university exam, which I did, and I was very good at it. So one thing led to another, that I was dissuaded from following any other career but the beaten path, which was engineering and, and, uh, and uh, then business school. And after business school, you go and work for a corporation, which is what I did for a year or two. Uh, and it all if I had decided to do that, all would have been fine. You'd probably not be sitting here with me today. <laughs> and I would be probably have retired as some corporate manager or something. It's not to be because uh, my heart was somewhere else. And uh, he, so, I mean, I'm talking the complexity of my father's relationship with me. And he said, he, he said, no, I've worked all my life and I don't want you to work because so long as you work, you're never free. So you have to be free which was a nice thing to say, you know, but for him being free means I had to do a business because, so I said, okay, so I started a manufacturing unit. I uh, had, there was nobody who had ever done business in my life. 
Uh, my sister was already an academic. And then I started, uh, manif- I, uh, um, you know, uh, fools go where angels fear to tread. That's what I did. So I started a hardcore in the ground, being the other side of the workers, manufacturing. I had 70 people working in that organization, in that factory. Uh, I did it for eight years. And then one day, I just decided... Before you love, what were you manufacturing? I was manufacturing high-frequency components for televisions. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I, was a, I was a communications engineer. Yeah, all right. And yeah. I was very good at it. We had a very fine unit running. Mm-hmm. And we were suppliers to some of the main companies manufacturing television stuff at the time. And it was making money. It was mm-hmm. doing everything. But my heart was not on it. So I remember sitting on... Uh, sitting uh, in in my in my little office, looking down on I was in the first floor, looking down on the workers, and I said I want to be there and talking to them and and photographing them. As a as a factory manager, factory owner, you can't do that because they're the opposite side of you. You're supposed to control them and make sure they work for you. You can't be seen hobnobbing with them. So anyway, this is a long story of of that. And one day I told him that. Enough is enough. I've lived your life and I need to live my life. And I really gave him the, the key to the factory, literally. And you gave who the key? My father. Your father. I said, from tomorrow, you run it. This is what you want to do. This is a life you did not have, mm. right? You didn't want, you wanted to be free. You wanted to have money. You mm. didn't have either. So, but this is not what I want to do. Mm. And... Uh, I never went to the factory that from there. It was very irresponsible, I agree. But I just could not. Mm. I just could not go there anymore. I was, I had tried my best. I was working 16, 17 hours a day. And I was, everything was working fine. But I could not do it anymore. It was killing me. So I said, I can't do it. And uh, I started doing consultancy as an engineer and, Till I used to take children out for walks in the in the Delhi Ridge Forest, and then uh, one day we found the Ridge Forest was going to be developed, and that's how I became an activist. We started a campaign, etc. And my I was photographing all the time, so everything completely changed within a matter of that decision being taken. It was like a like a step function. No, it was from this day to next, my life had changed. And I was not making that kind of money anymore. In a manufacturing unit, you can make a lot of money. But he never, he didn't like it, but he never said anything about it to me. He said, okay, fine, whatever you want to do. But he never said, you know, what should I do now? And so my cousin brother used to work with me and he started running that unit and ultimately they sold it off. But I could not do it anymore. And from that day, uh, that was the first turning point. It was a hard decision. Uh, and I became an activist. I had my first solo show in, uh, in 1993, 94, which led to this book. Uh, and so then that's how. But the book that it led to was the book the, called uh, Down Down and Out, uh, Laboring yeah. Under Global Capitalism, which mm-hmm. I just showed you, which was done with Jan Bremen. And uh, it got seen by major curators like Okwi Enzwer, uh, who was the curator of Documenta. Documenta uh, is the biggest art show uh, 
in the world. And I was nobody. And suddenly my work was shown in Documenta, which sort of... So what was that like for you? I mean, in <laughs> other words, you had just given up yeah. your father's career trajectory for you. You've Correct. done all the things that you were supposed to do, even though at age 12, yeah. you got a camera, your father let you create a dark room, yeah. your whole world came together. Yeah. And uh, But nonetheless, you were persuaded, you, you did the right thing, you went to engineering school and so on and so forth. You ran this uh, company. Then you had this experience, you couldn't do it anymore. And you, uh, uh, you wanted to be down with the laborers instead of up in the factory owner's uh, office. And, and then you find this famous uh, anthropologist. He, he found asked me. You, <laughs> He asks you to do the book with him. You say, of course, yes. You do the work. And then the book, your first effort, yeah. is this immense success. Yeah. What was that like for you? Um, well, firstly, the success didn't seem like success. Uh-huh. How so? Because I had no idea what <clears throat> I what that what that meant. So Documenta is the biggest place. It's like the mecca of art. Mm-hmm. You know, they have 100 artists showing every five years. To be in it is a career-shaping moment. Yeah. Right? Especially then. Document has changed a bit now, but especially then. And uh, I remember Akhvi Enzwar and Sarat Maharaj, the two curators, coming to my little NGO office, spending hours with me. And, and I had no clue who they were. You know, it was not my world. And... You know, then they send me a letter and invite and all that. And they only said, don't tell anybody about this. Because I had no clue. I didn't come from the art world. And then they, uh, I got a, uh, I didn't, except in the middle sometime I was at a dinner party and I, somebody was saying, what do you do? Where do you show? I said this. And then the person wouldn't leave me for the next three hours. So I said, what the hell is wrong with him? You know, the moment I mentioned Documenta, because no Indian artist had gone to Documenta except one 20 years before that. So uh, it was such a, and when I landed there, and you know, I had no clue. They sent me a ticket. They said, you can get two people. I had, I was living with somebody then, and then she said, no, I don't want to go. So I went. Uh, And uh, I used to do work with WHO at that time. I called up somebody in WHO. I have a free ticket to Europe. So can I stop by in Geneva? So that was, you know, it was just a thing to do. And But I landed there and it was completely uh, another world opening out to me. I had never seen art in that context at that scale. And uh, at that high level, what art meant, what it could do. So, and also how it, in people's eyes, how I changed in, in the art world. I suddenly, everybody knew me. People who would not even talk to me wanted an appointment with me. This was completely... How old were you then? Uh, I was... How old was I? This is 2002. So that's 20 years back. Uh, I was 43. 43. I was 43 years Mm -hmm. old. Um, um, I think it took a long time to absorb that. I got... There were... People who came from, you know, but like goldsmiths, people came to me saying, anytime you want to come there, you teach there, you 
we welcome you. You know, these are things which artists dream of. And it was just, just came my way. And I, I really had done very little to, to deserve it in a sense that, that I had, there was no, I hadn't planned any of it. And it's, it's true for most things in my life, which have any significance. I have not, there's no plan for that. They've just dropped from somewhere as if this is what I'm meant to be doing. And uh, I was just doing what came to me. You know, it wasn't like I'm making an effort or a big work plan. Or, I was just doing what came to me. And then it meant something to somebody. And it then came back to my life in some way. Uh, so it opened up a host of opportunity in the art world, which uh, is a world which gives you great freedom to think and to act and to create. That's how it's, I, I see it for myself. It, it is different things for different people. And I think my ability to do work the kind of work I'm doing, which is not very market-oriented, you know, except for now and then when people sell it here and there in auctions. But it's it's not typically work which goes around selling for millions of dollars in auctions, mm. in a sense. You know, it's really work of a different kind, research-based work. To show that work is a struggle, no? So this is really, which was a path opened out for me, which I have no explanation for why this path opened out, how this path opened out. And it gave me an opportunity to be myself in the most whole, holistic way. So I wasn't struggling with working for this big, uh, I was executive assistant to a very important CEO in my business career, in my, in my post-MBA career, and struggling. I wasn't struggling. I don't struggle with myself when I'm in this world. I'm like all there. You know, and it gives me a chance to, uh, as I grow in the life around me, to find expression of that life through my art expression. So let me ask you a, a sociological, anthropological question about you and your father and your family and this development. Because I diverted from that thing because you got no, talked about my but, life. But we'll come back to it because. <clears throat> As you described to me, he started at the bottom of the bureaucracy, but he ended up being the secretary of, was it a specific department? Or? Yeah, he was secretary to the Ministry of Communications. He was a communications engineer like me. So I mean, he, I was like him. Communication so engineer. he was the secretary for communications. Yeah. So he was in Indira Gandhi's cabinet, is that correct? He was, when she was the prime minister, he was a secretary. He reported to her, through her minister, his minister. He was, so... He, he started from nothing. He started from zero his, nothing. His brother worked so that he could go to school. Absolutely. And All his right. brother was equally bright, if not brighter. Right. He was a mathematician by nature, but yeah. because he needed to do this work, he goes up through the whole bureaucracy. Yeah. He ends up a secretary close to Indira Gandhi. Yeah. Then you told me after that, he was asked by a very wealthy... Yeah. newspaper owner yeah. to run his, the, the third largest newspaper in India. Second, or la, well, largest or second largest, right. they always compete. <laughs> so he did that. Yeah. Right. Okay. So your father ended up in a position of real authority yeah. in India. Absolutely. Right? So you then try to do what he wants you to do. Yeah. You can't do it anymore. No. You give it up. 
you start photographing laborers with this yeah. famous anthropologist. Yeah. Boom, you are in the biggest photography exhibit, art in, the, exhibit. Art exhibit yeah. in the world. Yeah. But it comes in a context yeah. of who your father is. Yeah. All right. So I would only imagine that the fact in India, that the fact that you're, and tell me if I'm wrong, that the fact that the family you came from is the family you came from contributed to how you were seen as yeah. a breakthrough photographer. So uh, he, he, of course, you know, um, uh, bought his own desires as a, as a man. Right. Uh, and my mother as, as a mother to what they think a son should be. And I fully now understand that. Uh, when he was eight, he apologized to me. He said, I'm really sorry, I misread you. So that was really uh, sort of extraordinary for him to do that. When he was 80? When he was 80. Yeah. Were the, let me just intervene on one thing. Did they feel affirmed by your success as a photographer? Uh, my mother never needed any affirmation of a son because okay. the son is, is never wrong. Right. Sense, okay. you know, mm -hmm. It's the problem of mothers. Right. Right. Um, my father must have uh, because uh, he couldn't fully understand it. Uh, he was a different kind of man, but intellectually and spiritually he understood it in a sense. And it, it showed in many... So what I hold very dear about my father is the fact that even if he did not agree with me, he never stood in my way. So earlier I, I agreed, I did what he wanted him to do because I did not really fight. I did not know better and I felt it was, it must be right because he's saying it. But the moment I started saying something which meant something else to me, he did not say, no, don't do it because I don't want you to do it. He never said that. Uh, and he always was like a spiritual guidance for me. So he had a very, as I told you, he had a constant spiritual quest. He had a very strong uh, meditation practice. Uh, we used to have this meditation uh, satsang, as we call it, you know, uh, uh, every Sunday in our house. And we still have it. I, we, I still have it where anybody could come and it's just a meditation on light. There's no religious chanting. And he taught me uh, uh, great secularism. He was a very secular man. So his, his guru's guru brother, which is called Guru Bhai, the brother of the guru, that means they both had the same teacher, was a Sufi. He was a Muslim. So the synchronicity of religion, the religion did not matter. And he told me a story once when uh, a disciple of his of my my father's guru's guru bhai came to my father's guru saying, "I want to turn learn from you." And so the guru said, "But why have you come? You already have a guru." And he gave him the reason. And so the guru said to him that if this is the reason you come to me, you go back. You're not ready for this. So this tradition of this higher knowledge which transcends religion, which is of another ilk, another connection, was in me very early on in my life. So I remember at my dining table as a very young child, it was actually very isolating for me because 
he said, I remember distinctly, early in my 10 or 11 years, he, he, we used to discuss, according to him, the three main questions any human being has in one's life. And they were, as I, where did I come from? Where will I go after I die? And what's my relationship to the world I live in? He said, these are three main questions of any human life. And to have that kind of query instilled in you when you're 10 or 8, it can be very disorienting, you know. You, and simultaneously with my sister, my older sister being a feminist, part of the feminist uh, movement in India and an academic, uh, I, for example, I, she started telling me what sexism in a, in a cartoon meant. So in a, in a newspaper cartoon where people will find something funny and I would normally find, she will tell me why this is not funny, why this is sexist. And then I would tell my friends why this is sexist. And of course, they wouldn't want to talk to me anymore. So these two questions, these two kinds of framings, uh, well, also made it difficult to me, the normal teenager growing up, because I was almost always in the self-critical or the critical space, in a sense. And I'm not sure it's good or bad, but it certainly was not usual. And also, so this, so uh, despite that he was a bureaucrat who don't make very little salary, uh, he subscribed for me the Lifetime Library of Photography, which meant that every three months, a book would arrive at our doorstep worth 99 rupees per plus postage with 100 rupees plus one rupee. So I have the I still have the library of about 18 or 19 books. It's a fascinating library, which came over over the years because he could afford to pay 99 rupees every three months for that. So he would he introduced me to what was going to become my mainstay later on in my life, even though he did not want me to go to New York and study it anymore. He still did not stop me from learning it. He did not stop me from throwing his uh, store of files out, literally out on, on, the, on the courtyard and installing a dark room in that space. And he just said, don't worry, I'll put this something else somewhere else. Or buying me a camera, the, a, the Canon A1, which was 1,000 rupees then. His salary was 2,000 rupees. He, he got me a camera uh, when I was 19 years old. I had the best camera anybody had. And I wasn't for a bit. So you see this kind of support for my growth. What, Except when it came to my future, he said, this is not going to give you a future. Maybe he was worried about the money. So, And then the strong spiritual side to me uh, makes him a very complex figure for me, you know? That took me a long time to comprehend and understand and also to go against because he's a very powerful man uh, intellectually and uh, a, like a patriarch. And it's hard to go against such a person because you're obviously in awe of the person, but you also want to move out of his life in a sense. Something gave me the strength. I think complete desperation gave me the strength when uh, at 31 or 32, I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm doing my own thing. And I think it, uh, it, it must have been complete desperation on my part that despite who he was, I can't do it. So when you were 31 or 32, that's when you said, I can't do it anymore. Maybe 33. Then when you're 43, mm. you have this breakthrough experience. Yeah. So it's actually 10 years. Yeah from when you stopped. Yeah. So how much of that 10 years 
was spent on uh, this project with the anthropologist, which resulted three, in three years. Three years, just before so forty to forty-three or so, or something. A uh, like little earlier, because it was it oh, finished it published in two thousand. This came in two thousand two. I get so it. So five years before that, well, I so, was in the late thirties. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Ravi Agarwal and host Michael Lerner. So what were you doing in that stretch of time after you decided that you couldn't do this anymore yeah. and before you got together with uh, anthropology? So, uh, I mean, I was, uh, uh, I was, I became an engineering consultant. Oh, that's right. You yeah. told me you were doing consulting. Then at some time down the line, I started fighting for the Delhi Ridge Forest. I was still working, but I had no income from any of that. And the campaign started going on and then we were, you know, racked a bunch of four or five people. And then we started working on waste because there was a so-called plague in 1994. And being an engineer, I always look for some analysis of something. So it was an, I, I published two books on technologies, two, two small booklets on technologies. Those booklets got noticed by the Supreme Court through somebody and they, they took it on board. And uh, they said, invite this person to be on the, st- on the standards committee for medical waste. And so all these things somehow happened because I was doing, I was reacting to and I was doing something. And it, it somehow was getting noticed and I was just doing it. And, uh, and that at one point, uh, then healthcare without harm. So all these things were happening in, this, in these 10 years. So the work on medical waste mm-hmm. led you directly to healthcare without harm. Which started here at Commonwealth yeah, yeah. with the with the Paul Connett was there. Uh, Annie yeah. Leonard and other people had bought Paul Connett because yeah. they heard that I was fighting this incinerator thing. Mm-hmm. So they bought because Annie was there for the Bhopal thing, and then she bought Paul Connett there. Mm-hmm. And Toxics Link was formed in that joint meeting one day. Of course, then I ran it later, but it was really the name carved out in this bunch of ten of us sitting in, in I think in my in my living room or something thinking of how to do this. But I had a knack of institutional, how to build an institution. And so I just took it on head on. I want to come back to some of the things your father said to you that struck me in our conversation where you you mentioned that your father said that spiritual life was not for everybody. Yeah. And that it only made sense to explore a spiritual practice if you were deeply drawn to it, and most people aren't. Yeah. Yeah. And that just struck me, I mean, number one, it's true, but it's so wise, you know. He was a person with deep insight, Mm -hmm. uh, more than I could comprehend or can comprehend. Mm -hmm. He said things to me which come back to me and seem to be true. Uh, in a sense, it's for me in a, in a completely different way. Uh, the way Einstein predicted the space-time warp, and we are still mm-hmm. coming to grip with what that really means. Mm-hmm. So some people have insights, and these are insights not of the intellect, the insights of deep beings. And uh, for me, at least, when I was in his presence, it was like in the presence of a cosmic person. And... Uh, 
if I sat with him, he I remember he used to sit in his armchair in his bedroom. He was, you know, he was 37 years older than I am because I was born when he was 37. And I would sit on the floor in the carpet in front of him. And he would, just by sitting there, it was like all negative energy from me went away and only positive things remained. And it was... When I went out, all the negative energies came back. So when I had to cope, but his presence had such a huge influence on just my connecting to something else. And he would never, uh, he, he was a very practical man. He would almost, except for these things he said now and then, he would never tell me something which is not practical. He would never send me, He would never say something esoteric to me. So uh, for him, building a house means putting the bricks and putting the, the mortar and making the next brick. And building a house is building a house, you know. There's nothing to do with being in a cosmic world. So it's very highly, and I learned that from him, that the material reality is very real and can only be dealt with because I was all, I always struggle with the material reality. And so he said some things to me, which I, uh, one is that uh, what I just, what I, what I told you yesterday that it's not for everybody. And because I'd asked him a question, I said, you know, uh, I want to meditate, but I always stray off. And he said, why do you have to meditate? It's not required. And um, he said, if you ever feel the need to meditate, then you should do it. Otherwise, this is not for everybody. And we used to all, always discuss uh, because, you know, about the great saints in, in India, you know, including the Sufi saints, you know, uh, Ramana Maharishi, and he had read all of the stories. He had gone to their places. He was a quiet follower. Uh, and he said, yeah, those people were were those people, but that doesn't mean all of humanity is like them. They were ready for it. It happened. And everybody else shouldn't waste their time on religion or any such thing. You think it's, it's pointless. You should just live a life as it comes to you. You have to eat, drink, enjoy, and lead a life. If this bothers you, you do that. If it doesn't bother you, it's a waste of your time. So this really, that's, a, that's, a, that's the extent of being practical. And later on, he told me this. He said, it's not for everybody. It, we can't assume, it's, this is much later on, he said, we can't assume that because we have these possibilities of this practice, everybody should be following them. He said, no, it is for a large number of people, this is not their life. And we should not tell them to follow it. So uh, now these are have great influences on my life. It means that even when he was dying, uh, he was in the hospital bed and I asked him because he, he always used to keep this picture of his guru in his wallet and his wallet was at home. So I said, can I get that picture for you? He said, I don't need a picture. He's all around me. And then I asked him two more things. I said, he had a very large family and he constantly did things for his family, you know, put them to schools, to admissions, jobs, etc. And I said, what is my duty for your family? He said, none. So that was my family. This is not your family. This is not your life. So you have no duty towards my family. It's so freeing to saying that there's no carryover. I live my life, live my life, you live your life. Uh, and uh, so 
I remember when I was sitting in office one day and I got a call from him uh, and I said, Ravi, I'm just telling you I'm going to the hospital. So I said, uh, uh, what happened? He said, I think I'm having a heart attack and I'm going with the driver. Extraordinary. So I said, I'm coming. He said, no, I'll, the doctor will tell you when you need to come. Mm -hmm. This kind of self-assurance for a traditional man, you know, was completely, uh, it, I still grapple with it because in the construction of the self, I believe in a place like India, this kind of performance of duty is constantly there. Children, parents put pressure on the children, look after me, don't look after me. Uh, but he was completely not, I asked him because my mother was really sick when she was 86 and she died soon after. For years she was really sick and he had, she had to take about 13 or 14 medicines and he had a like a good analytical mind. He had a complete chart of it. Have you taken this? Have you taken? So I asked him, I said, how do you do this? You just sit with her all day for years. And he said, I married her. It's my duty. And I, said, and I told myself, he didn't say, I'm, I love her. He said, it's my duty to do it for her. So this kind of separation of the self from duty, this something I is very sort of, I keep thinking about it. What is this relationship to the self? where you have defined yourself separate from your emotions, but also deeply in, in the everyday of things. And to me, it's a very important, the way I think about it, very important thought about how we live in the world, you know, that there are things we need to do and which are not always because they give us pleasure or give us happiness, but we need to do those things. And what gives us pleasure and what gives us happiness is a, is a question in a sense, which is difficult to answer. But it's also made me this kind of person where I am able to talk, take a lot of, uh, well, a personal, if I may use the word suffering, for the sake of saying, I have to see this through because I've committed myself to it. And it also meant that many things which I could have taken along the way, many goodies I could have picked along the way, I don't pick up because I feel that this is not my path. I need to stick to my path. I don't know what it means. It's just the way his whole presence constructed me. And uh, uh, it's sort of this complexity of that man, I'm still kind of realizing it's a relationship of the mind, the intellect and looking at your own self critically in a sense, but also believing yourself is a cosmic self. It's not yeah. easy to understand for me. No, it's not easy to understand. Mm. You mentioned that he had a sangha that met at his home and you live in his home now. Yeah, yeah. yeah in New Delhi. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he left it for me in his way. He left it for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, uh, and an extraordinary home, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned he had a sangha, and you have continued it. Yes. And you said anybody can come, but I imagine anybody is actually a, a fairly uh, is a, a group of people that you feel comfortable with. Um, no. They, you know. So. Uh, uh, literally anybody can come, but anybody right. comes or not is not. Nobody's screened. Nobody's asked whether you know somebody else or not. Well, uh, how many people come? About 50 people come. How many? 50. 
50 people. 50 people come. They're mostly regulars. Sometimes uh, other people come. But nobody asks if, if you know somebody else. And what, what brought you here? Well, that's pretty extraordinary. And yeah. what is the sociology of yeah. the group of people who come? So this was my father's guru who uh, initiated them into this meditation on light. I get it. And the specific meditation was that you, you, you sit in silence with your eyes closed and imagine... Uh, something which you relate to very strongly, becoming light, mm. and the light coming to you, and you becoming of light. Mm. That's a total meditation. And you do it for about half an hour, 40 minutes, and then you stop. And you do it once a week? You can do it uh, uh, every day if you like. No, I understand that. We but do I mean, it once a week in you, that gathering. I see. What yeah. day of the week? Do Sunday, you do? every Sunday morning. Uh-huh. And do you participate? I have. I have very rarely participated in it. My sisters oh. do. Oh, your sister does. Yeah, I have my very private practice. I don't. I. I've never participated in this commun- in this in this in this space. Uh-huh. Uh, though it's happening in my house every day, mm. uh, every Sunday, uh, and I meet those people. Uh, so it's a routine. It's like a kind of ritual. Uh, it starts at ten o'clock, and then after they finished, we have some tea. We make some samosas. We get some more than some sweets, and it's served around. Some people hang around, they talk. Some people want to. Some some sometimes somebody wants to sing a bhajan, they sing it. Whatever they want to do, somebody wants to say something, they are happy, they're welcome to do it. But there is this is the only format, and then they get up and go, hmm. and they meet me and get up and go. You said you have your own private practice. Is there anything you're willing to say to describe it? Uh, I have my own uh, meditation routine, uh, and which is which hap- can happen in different types of times of the day. It can happen in many places, mm. and uh, I—it's hard to describe it. I'm always somehow connected and disconnected from everything around me, and I have never figured out why. So you're both. Present and also not removed. Present. Yeah, right. Always. And so you have. Let me just put into words to, to try them out. You talked about our constructed self, and for want of a better word, our cosmic self. Mm-hmm. Right. That's words that. So you have your constructed self that's mm-hmm. engaged with the world, and also this other. I feel I have it. You it takes feel, me a, a moment to get into that. I can disconnect in a moment. Okay. Hmm. Do you think there is a relationship, just out of curiosity, between your choice of the camera, hmm. the observing self, and how you came to the cosmic self? <laughs> uh, when... Let me answer it differently. So my earliest memories of my childhood, which I've actually written about, somebody asked me to, was when I was five years old. I was in nursery. And I used to, my father had this uh, government bungalow, which had a back courtyard. And in that, we had a swing. And behind the swing was a big mango tree. And in the mango tree was squirrels. And I used to come back from school and sit in the swing and watch the squirrels. And then I made a small trap with a wicker basket and a small, uh, small uh, wooden stick with a rope. 
So I would put some breadcrumbs and this, I'd trap the squirrels and then I'd leave them and then trap them and leave them. So uh, this, this image is so, so part of my, my, myself and uh, whether it was my nature or, or it was something else, I can't say, but I was this kind of child in a sense. And then always deeply drawn to what my father said. And these, maybe he said many other things I don't remember. But these are the things I remember. And this part of life, these things always stuck with me. So squirrels stuck with me. So my garden now, the terrace garden, is full of squirrels. You know, and they also cut through my laundry. But that's a separate story. They have sharp teeth. But uh, there's this other world thing, which is very early on. My camera probably became my, my uh, sort of, uh, my way of dealing with the world because it was so interior. Uh, and uh, the camera became like a companion. And it was like I could see my world. And for some reason, I had this great visual eye Great in the sense that, not great, but the, an eye which was put things together. The world came together visually for me. And when I when so he the camera was actually given to me by by you know to appease me because my sisters have, were going to Badrinath, this pilgrimage in the in the seventies, you know, uh, in a car because you can't really go up there. And I wanted to go, and my mother wouldn't let me go. I was really, I was really 12 years old. And my father said, here, I was crying, I think, and he gave me his camera. He said, why don't you go and have some fun? And that was the day. So uh, it, it put my world together. And then, you know, I, I never left it, in a sense. Do you think in words or in images? So I used to only think in images earlier, but I've learned to speak. I've, my brain has become so active, actually sometimes detrimental of my detriment, being detrimental to my photography is that I have to struggle with them now because I started writing a lot and enjoying writing. And uh, it's a difficult struggle uh, to be in the fully visual and um, I can't decide anymore. Hmm. Do you think that in your own way, you, in your own way, that you continue your father's lineage of being both, you have a career, but you also have this internal, private, spiritual life that from the time I've spent with you, I experience it sort of emanating through your being. And I wonder whether you are in some way conscious of not only a rich internal life as a creative artist uh, and as a writer and thinker and activist, but also whether you are holding in some way, just as your father received it from a disciple of the Vekanandas and from Paramahansa Yoga, Yogananda and others, uh, do you feel that you are holding 
uh, in your own way, uh, a powerful tradition of a lineage of spirit. So uh, I feel that uh, that my my internal journey has been uh, uh, is a the, the the parents I got actually were aligned with my internal journey. If you believe in the soul before before life, then uh, when my father's guru told my mother, when the time is right, you will have it. Oh, actually, he said, when the right soul comes along, then you will have it. When the right soul, right soul comes, comes that's what she told. That when the time is right, when the right soul and comes so along. And so she believed that, your father believed that. Do you believe that? Uh, I don't know what they believe because they were parents who would never adulate me at all. We, we don't come from a family who celebrates the family for the sake of, even when I went to document that, there was no celebration about mm -hmm. it. It was a very stoic family in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, I, increasingly I believe that my place of birth had something to do with, uh, with, with me, my internal, my internal journey. And that despite all the ups and downs, which happens in everybody's lives, uh, this internal journey has been constant. And I believe that, um, that this is because uh, it, it was the right place for that journey, mm. in a sense. So uh, there was never a conflict with my internal journey mm. and the place I was. So... Let's go back to, I mean, you, you could have lived anywhere. Um, many of your friends mm. are now high-level tech people in mm. Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, your wife uh, is from Germany. Mm. Um, but you have chosen to stay in India mm. uh, and chosen to focus on issues like many others, but like migrant labor, like toxics, and mm. so on. New Delhi is, even though you live in a beautiful house in the defense colony that was your father's house, it's not an easy place to live, given mm. the immense amount of pollution and mm. so on. Um, it seems to me that you've chosen to remain in a very difficult part of the world, mm. which seems to me analogous to your decision to devote yourself to the experience of the street mm. and to experiencing these people who have nothing but in other ways can be among the richest people, mm. that they, they have, uh, they experience joy, but above all you focus on their, their dignity mm -hmm. and your ability to be with fisher people, with migrant laborers in this relationship of um, deep connection. So I wonder if you see a connection between your dharma of working with these most marginalized people and your decision not to become part of the immense Indian diaspora and live in comfort somewhere else, 
but to remain in India in the heart of the Anthropocene and the Bali crisis. So when you say decision, you give me too much agency in this. So mm-hmm. I don't claim that agency. Okay. I, 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 it's a constant struggle to do internally what I do, but it's not by any sense of sacrifice that I do it. I do it because that's what I want to do. And uh, why I did not migrate out and stay in different... It's not because I'm making a conscious choice. There was just... That connection didn't happen for me. Uh, I always felt a bit alien. And also there was this constant feeling that... uh, Like when I used to go to Europe or uh, in my early times and... Everything was lovely. Uh, It still is, you know. You can get out and have a cup of coffee and have a nice conversation, go to a museum, uh, be very free in what you want to do. Um, uh, But I always felt something missing there. It wasn't like a nostalgia for home. It was this thing that the material life beyond a point did not hold me. Uh, and I'm not saying it's any kind of bravado or any kind of superior idea uh, because it's completely possible to have a material life and a spiritual life with the same. So it's not that. For me, it just did not hold me because it could be just a feeling of home as simple as that. But I think it was just more than that. And this, this thing that I could... Uh, have the kind of conversations which I have in my place. And I think I gave you an example of uh, when we spoke about this beetle leaf seller who used to have a small shack outside close to our house for years. And he, he, sent his, he sent his children to very good education and all that in that. And once I asked him that... Uh, so, you know, why do you still do this? You have money, your children are settled, they are. And he said, I have everything here. There's nothing, what, what else do I need? But this sense of contentment I find in many places in India. And somehow I don't find it in the West. And maybe I have not been in the right places. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But this, well, that's beautiful. What, what it leads me to, because you and I both know that in the, in the, world of spiritual traditions that a strong argument can be made, often is made, that India is sort of the home of spiritual reality. And that whereas the West is focused on achievement and materialism and so on and so forth, that even though India in many ways is now caught up in that materialism, the the lineage uh, is one, uh, as your father spoke to you as a child about the three uh, obligations that we all have, um, or that he believes and and you believe, and I think I believe we all have. Uh, it's not it's not focused on material achievement. Where 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 does our soul come from? Where is it going? And what is our relationship to life in between? By the way, those three things translate into the traditions I know about as. Where do we come from? Where are we going? And to whom are we accountable? Right. So it's a different version of that, right. that same thing. Uh, it's almost virtually the same. Right. 
You're listening to a TNS conversation with Robbie Agarwal and host Michael Lerner. When we were talking about the poly crisis, the interaction of the environmental, social, technological, financial, economic, and all the other global stressors, acting, interacting with complete unpredictability, with ever greater force, creating future shocks of ever greater intensity and frequency. And we were talking about how we cannot escape the poly crisis. It is reality. But we must, we have no choice but to navigate it. The question is, to what degree can we bend the arc of the poly crisis toward better outcomes? That's where activism or engagement of some kind comes in. You and I have both devoted decades to environmental health activism. And we've seen the progress. At the same time, the progress is being overwhelmed by the increasing flood of toxic chemicals, the toxification of the entire biosphere, everything else. So we've talked about we can't escape the poly crisis. Um, we, perforce, we must navigate it. We have no choice but to navigate it. We will navigate the poly crisis better if we understand it, if we observe it accurately, mm-hmm. not how we wish it would be, but if we have maps that actually... And the maps are constantly changing because mm-hmm. the poly crisis is unpredictable. So you and I have devoted decades to environmental health activism, to, and we've made progress. Our global community of environmental health and justice activists have made progress. And yet our progress in that, as in climate change and justice and everything else, is constantly being overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So as we took our walk and talked we agreed that we cannot tell whether we will find our way out of this to a better future mm. or whether um, whether for humanity as it now exists, nature as it now exists, uh, we've seen the best of mm. it. And if there is a better future, it will be defined by post-human mm-hmm. species, by cyborgs or uh, the world being better off without humans or whatever. So my question to you is, at this point in your life, at 63, how do you hold uh, your life in the Anthropocene, in the polycrisis? How do you understand, how do you interpret through your art, through your service, um, where we are? It's a difficult question because like the elephant in the room, one can only describe it in one's own little, what one can see. Uh, But, uh, I mean, underlying any thought is the idea of mortality for me. That I'm a mortal being and life is what it is, and it'll be as long as it'll be. So that's something which gives me perspective 
all the time and what is important for me to do in the time I may have. Uh, because beyond this life, we don't know anything. It's all theory. What happens after life, before life, these are all things. But myself, as I know something, is deeply embedded in my experience of it, which is a deeply physical reality of my own body and my life. So I am con constantly in that space and it gives me that, uh, that uh, sort of um, pressure to do what I can. And in the do what I can, there, is, there are limitations of what I can do, what I, how I read something as right and wrong. Uh, and uh, alongside, one also has this cosmic idea that nothing is, nothing will be, everything is perfect. Uh, but while that is there as a place you can link into for getting your little energy recharge, we cannot live like that. We have to act. We have to do. This is how we are as human beings. And when we see something not right, we have to do something about it. Uh, and so in, the, in that doing, you know that better. You have been part of the, you have triggered so many things. You continue to trigger so many things in trying to change uh, for human health. Uh, and I've been part of that, in a sense. Maybe that's how we met also. So I, I, don't, I, I don't have any uh, grand idea of myself that I can change the world. I can change, I can do what I can. And also whether it will change the world in the future, I don't know. So that's how I, I frame my particular actions, uh, not with any sense of despondency, but in a sense of that I'm going to do the best I can. Hmm. So in that doing, it, is, it has been a big struggle because uh, the question, the material questions of the material world are uh, uh, omnipresent that while we keep on doing, making these small victories, banning this chemical, getting this thing right, fighting this fight for justice. So many other things are going wrong at a bigger scale. And you can't but then think of the system, systemic issue your one is part of. And the system seems to be so, om, uh, so omnipresent and omnipowerful. Uh, it seemed to be so driven by human greed and insensitivity to other human beings and non-human beings also to the planet per se, that the only time we sense to we seem to move is when it becomes inevitable to move or when it starts coming home in some way, it starts hurting us. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be the nature of, of who we are, unfortunately, it seems to me, very selfish, small-looking small people. Maybe it's part of our early evolution of survival. I don't know what it is. But certainly it's not enough to think of when in the Anthropocene we are, have the ability to change the planetary systems. You know, we were al always in a planetary system, but now we have the ability to shift those systems. When we're talking of 50% elimination of species in the next 30, 40 years, as some UN reports say, or we are talking of 10 places where in the Anthropocene we have tipping points uh, like, you know, uh, climate change, toxicity, et cetera, et cetera, that we are shifting the planet. 
that we are causing uh, a, a global warming, which probably was caused by natural ways 15,000 years back. But we are causing it. And the data is saying that we are causing it post the great acceleration. That means post-industrial time, you know, in less than a century. It's an extraordinary thing that progress means this. Progress means uh, cutting off the bough of the tree we are sitting on, of the bough we are sitting on. So, so where is the wisdom in this? We have more knowledge today than any time else. We are far more advanced in science than we were ever in history. Uh, in every single sphere, we, are, we have only progressed in terms of what we know of the world in the material way. Uh, we are now putting a station on the on moon to go to Mars, to put a man on Mars. So look, we have, these are the positive stories through which we define progress. On the other hand, there are more poor people than ever. The, the new Oxfam report says 1% of Indian population owns 40% of the wealth. Uh, we are in the midst of climate change. We can see it around us every day. The grass is turning greener earlier. The snow is melting. The snow is snowing. The Arctic will melt. The Arctic ice will melt. What will release, we don't know. But already we are looking at how to mine the Arctic. So the global powers are saying, whose flag should we put there? So we haven't really learned, have we? In the COVID times, we're thinking of maybe post-COVID, we learn something because it's a big the small virus can destroy a whole whole species almost. Uh, but we haven't learned that. And then we start thinking of how, what is really happening. So I keep going back to texts like what people like Karen Barat say, who's a physicist, became feminist theorist, talking about this idea of this appearance, appearances, intra-agency of phenomena that maybe the virus appeared because it's like cancer. The conditions are right. So it's not one thing causing it. It's like the fishing village. It's not one thing causing the problem. Everything is changing around them. So the conditions are right for violence. It's just a spark which needs it. So the virus will appear, many viruses will appear because we have gone down the track of plucking out things from, from the wild, destroying the wild, experimenting the dangerous way. So it'll appear one day or the other. Climate change is also an appearance. And the only way we deal with these things is by dealing with the symptoms of the problem. So climate change, reduce fossil fuel. Will that solve the climate change crisis? It won't. And what about everything else? which is happening, will it solve species extinction? What about a new knowledge which says that we are co-evolved with the species? Without viruses, there'll be no placenta, you know? So that 80% of our, of our organisms are other organisms from other, other gene stocks. We are just one thing which is part of the whole evolution web of life. We know this biologically. We know this scientifically, uh, but yet we are, despite having a plastics treaty in the UN, we are going to invest $200 billion more in plastic production in the next 30 years. So it completely boggles my mind that who are we really? 
Are we so caught in the past, the institution so caught, caught in the capitalist greed that they don't even see destruction when it's coming? You know? So to me, this is, this is a disease. Either we have not evolved enough that we're still in the midst of evolution. Because who's to say that just because we can walk on two legs, we, have, or we still have a very weak spine, you know? We are like these fragile creatures. That we are fully, we are fully evolved. What about consciousness of evolution? Maybe what these people, these other teachers are telling us is that this is where you can go. What my father says is not for everybody. Maybe it should be for everybody. Maybe that should be the next level of evolution. So what does that mean when we say consciousness grows? Firstly, it means that you see the big picture. Like Einstein saw in his genius mind, the hundreds of parameters and put together something which was just extraordinary, right? You could, a normal physician, physicist could not put the evidence together. So reality is not a sum total of evidences in the way we see them in material ways. Reality is a sum total of something else. And when you can put it all together, frame it all together, you get something called wisdom, in a sense. Are we just not capable of it? Are we just, is this it? Is this all we are capable of? And everything, all connections are our possibilities. That's why we dream of this cosmic connection and we sometimes feel it, but we never touch it except a few people on the planet. Maybe we are just not capable. That's a possibility. Time will tell. So to me, this is a big question that either we have reached a limit or maybe this reaching of a limit will hurtle us towards a new consciousness because we'll have no other way of surviving. Either you go back to, to, the, to, the, to the caves, I mean, the caves are beautiful, either we go back there or we hurtle up to another layer. When, we're saying, when we say the speed of light is a limit to the human, to mass traveling, we're not talking, we're talking of a certain dimensional travel, a linear travel through space. What about, what if travel is possible vertically through dimensions, then it takes a jiffy. So what we know of the world materially is what we know of it. But to say that the world we know is the world it is, is a mistake. Our world is not the universe. So, I mean, it, it is much more than that. And we should accept that we, our window of that world is very little. To me, it means what in my, in my, in my query of, of the world, of the, uh, the sustainability issue, that through the material trajectories, I fear we will not get there. By just changing the few fuels, few this, we're not going to one point, we, we're not going to stop this from happening. We have to, at a very beginning, change our relationship to everything around us. And that's a spiritual ethical question, that it is not that, can I, how much water can I conserve? It is my relationship to water itself, which starts from me, from my inner self. Because I don't think capitalism comes from the aliens. It comes from my inner self, no? The systems we've created, the world we create is who we are. So uh, a monk creates a cave in the Himalayas because that's what he or she is. A big businessman creates this empire because that's the world we... 
the world we create, the people we we have around us are who we are. It's a reflect as I as I start early on in my life, the world is a reflection of me. So you see, these things which we call spiritual can be read in so many, so many ways. And I, I, when I work with communities, this is the question in my head: that for the fisherman, is the sea he sees the sea the sea I see the sea he sees? Are we talking the same reality? Is there one reality? And I think. I keep on doing the work I do because that's what I can do, but also, increasingly, I want to do other work, which is not just a trajectory of changing one chemical at a time, because I'm tired of that, you know, because how many chemicals we are changing? They're introducing more chemicals today than ever before, so I really feel that something more fundamental is in order. And I really feel the separation of the spiritual from the material is a mistake because that's not how we live life. I asked a very famous scientist once, "So how did you decide to marry your wife? Did you do an analytical check, or you had something else? What is that something else? So we feel we know this is what it is. We have learned in the in the progression of enlightenment and modernity, which is why where we are." that we are not fragmented beings we are been told to believe that knowledge is separate from knowing and from wisdom and i think this is a mistake it creates alienations from our own selves we are fragmented people and we are scared to to say that we are fragmented but we have to accept we are fragmented and we are fragmented because we have decided to be fragmented not because somebody else has told us and if you're not fragmented our desire structures will fall in place you know so what is it what should you do i i have friends in germany who keep on you know they're my age some are older they want a new house they want to do this they want a new girlfriend so i which is all i said so what is it you really want say i want happiness so i said where can i buy happiness who will give you happiness so that's the question you have to ask yourself so this fragmentation and pursuit from the outside i deeply believe is a mistake and i've never called it a mistake but today i call it a mistake because i think that we have come to a crisis point where if we don't call it a mistake we are not calling it out mm. it's really a mistake we really have to change uh, our the way we believe we are in the world mm. so that's my next Set set of journeys. I don't know where it's going to take me, uh, but um, maybe I'm just growing old. Mm. Who can say? Ravi Agarwal, I'm I'm deeply moved by our conversation, um, and I'm also moved by what's happening between us on this visit. Uh, I don't know where it goes, but I said to you. Last night, as I dropped you off at Commonweal, where you're staying, that I hope this is not the end, but um, uh, the beginning of a, a deeper exploration of how our lives and work. Um, I'm sure it will. Will will nourish each other and support what we can contribute. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Ravi Agarwal and host Michael Lerner. 
as I mentioned early, my wife, Cheryl Patton, and Susan Greylock Usum are here with us um, and have been listening. Um, uh, Cheryl, do you have questions or reflections? Well, I think about humans and evolution and how we became to be what we are. And there was a period of time when Homo sapiens showed up and the birth canal became very narrow. And that was also true with Neanderthals, so they could walk farther and hunt and all of that. But if the birth canal is very narrow, having a baby changes. So the baby drops down and does the first dance step, basically, raises his left shoulder and is born facing backwards. Now, if you were a gorilla or a chimpanzee, the baby would be born facing upward and would crawl up and hold on to fur and hold and find the, the nipple of the mom. But for Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, the baby's fading backwards. So it's very helpful. Our people are there who care enough about babies and about mothers that they'll help in the birth process. So at some point, that kind of caring and community and taking care of became an important part of our survival. Now, maybe there was some kind of DNA chromosome shift that says, okay, uh, people that had receptors for uh, uh, different kinds of chemicals that create happiness in us uh, emerge, and that would happen, that would be activated when you caught a baby, or maybe it was just our consciousness and our sense of being in community and caring for each other, that's what moved us all into community and caring and moving forward. So I think it's there, and I think that can be treated and brought forward. It's not that we are going to always be, the children have learned to be greedy, because from the beginning we learned how to care for each other. Otherwise, no one would have survived. So your comments on that? I think it's just so beautiful the way you put it. I did not know that, what you said. So it's really... Uh, a deep insight into uh, somewhere down the line, I really feel we have lost that sense of we are in this together. Uh, and in a time when we are not hunter-gatherers or competing for survival anymore. So why in this time when we don't have any competition to survive, even amongst ourselves. Why do we do this? It's a question that's very hard for me to answer. Can you say a little bit more about um, the role of art for you in knowing and holding knowledge and knowing at the same time and art as a way to kind of hold that and also bring it forth? And also your own process, which is very engaged with people around you. So... Uh, Art for me uh, is actually uh, intuitive, firstly. So everything else is, I'm saying, from my interpretation of that intuition, intuitiveness. Uh, it, uh, I'm able to uh, think, uh, I, I'm able to bring complex feelings and ideas into something I can relate with, that this is what I want to say. So uh, I'm sure there could be other mediums for other people maybe literature and poetry and other expressions would do the same thing. For me, the, the visual imagery does that. And also it, it crystallizes my own. So when I produce something, I also become an outsider to my own production and I start looking at it from the outside. So then it speaks to me. For that. I'm the first audience for my own work. 
so and I enjoy it and I, it takes me to a deep inner self and uh, uh, um, it's the most energizing thing I do <laughs> and so it is I, I feel blessed by that I can do it if I didn't do was able to do it I don't know what else I'd be doing in terms of being in that space for myself so uh, and the other thing is that like today I was walking out on the Pacific Ocean and you you get you get a sense of something which is so big and so large in a sense and there is a, there's also the beauty of it so art and beauty are interconnected even if it's critical and political the idea of something very aesthetic, something which absorbs. So it becomes a way for me in which complex ideas are able to be communicated. Because when you look at it, you you relate with it. Even somebody else looks at it, I hope they relate to that. And then it means something for them. Could be different than what it means to me, but means something to them. So it's like a common language, I feel. But as I said, this is all secondary to the reason I do it, which is that it draws me so much to it. Ravi, is there anything as we come to a close that you would like to add to the conversation? Any last words or reflection? No, I, we, what we didn't talk was all about me and not about you. But, uh, you know, that fascinating conversation. But in a line or two. Mm-hmm. In a line or two. Uh, what draws you to this side? Because it's almost difficult talking about in this world where everything is based on a certain kind of evidence when we go to environmental health work where we find the evidence even when you look at cancer you have to look at the evidence you know because how do you look at evidence when everything is contributing to that this cause and effect that's the way in which knowledge production goes and you've been an academic also so from there to here where now you're teaching yoga and citing him from the Mahabharata and other Upanishads. Living in California, doing something which is there, belongs to my part of the world. And not only doing it superficially, but doing it in such, uh, um, such knowledgeable and felt ways. So if, just a few lines if you want to say about sure. how, does, how did that happen? How does that happen? Well, I think... Perhaps the most fundamental of all questions, metaphysical questions, Mm -hmm. is what is primary? Is um, Is it the physical universe or is it consciousness? I don't think we know the answer to that Mm -hmm. question. Um, But in terms of Kuhn's, Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution, where these revolutions in understanding shape everything. Um, The question of whether uh, the material world is primary, the material universe is primary, or whether consciousness is primary is a very fundamental question. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have many friends and colleagues who make the case that consciousness is primary. And what that enables us to do with the scientific revolutions, you have a buildup of questions that the current materialist paradigm can't answer. 
So you, for example, mentioned whether the speed of light is the limiting speed in the universe. Well, it's the limiting speed in the dimensions that we're aware of. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are all kinds of phenomena called psi phenomena, uh, where communications and healing and uh, the question of whether the soul survives death and uh, whether there's intelligent life in the universe, whether it visits us, whether... There are all kinds of questions um, that build up over time that, um, that suggest, as you've been saying, uh, that we don't have the final grasp uh, and that perhaps the shift that we need uh, actually takes place in um, a, a, a fundamental shift in our understanding of science, which means knowing in the deepest sense. Mm-hmm. And perhaps material science is not the last word. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as Charles said, uh, the shift in uh, the human birth canal uh, uh, that differentiates us from other, uh, you know, from gorillas and orangutans and so forth, and that there needed to be collaboration for, for another woman to catch the baby mm-hmm. because it's not born coming up the mother's breast, but rather uh, uh, comes out the other way. So, and that, and, you know, and at some point the, the cave art revolution in consciousness. So there have been these profound shifts. When you talked about your uh, work with um, migrant labor, and you said 90% of all labor in India mm-hmm. is migrant labor. Mm-hmm. And you said there's something about their lives where there's this immense clarity and dignity because they have no choice. Mm-hmm. In order to survive, they have no choice. They can't send their children to school mm-hmm. because if the child goes to school, it's one less set of hands yeah. to earn a living mm-hmm. to survive. And how our moralisms mm. so often don't take into account mm that so many people have no choice. Right. And so if we look at life without the lens of our moralisms, mm-hmm. which, by the way, shift every 50 or 100 years. If mm-hmm. you look back 50 years, they're different. You look back 100 years, they're different. Mm-hmm. Our moralisms shift. Mm-hmm. But the ability to see what is actually going on in the world Mm -hmm. in order to do the best that we can is a rare quality. Mm -hmm. You know, someone once said that humanity can't stand very much of reality. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to Plato and the the Mm -hmm. analogy of the cave, Cave, that most people can't stand much reality. Mm -hmm. But if we are to make a shift, we need to be able to look at reality without our moralisms mm. getting in the way mm. of the direct perception. Well, that's what you do in your work, from mm. my point of view. Mm-hmm. And so it could well be that in the poly crisis that we're facing, that we are reaching a point where our moralisms are not a sufficient interpretive scheme mm-hmm. and where we ourselves, not just the migrant laborers in India, we may have to learn to live uh, because there is no choice. Mm-hmm. And what will that world look like? Mm-hmm. And will we discover again 
the direct relationship to human dignity mm-hmm. that you have described in these people who are so poor, the poorest of the poor, mm-hmm. and yet they have this relation, and yet there's a richness. Mm-hmm. And can that richness that comes from the dignity of living because we have no choice? Well, the poly crisis is all around us now. You mm-hmm. described it. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, I suspect we are going to have to face reality. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's the question. Not what is my moralism or my progressive moralism mm-hmm. or whatever it is, which I hold dear, mm-hmm. but it isn't adequate to Not the enough. moment. Um, so I am living with the question, like you, I still cherish decades of environmental health and justice work, mm. but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. And so the question I'm holding, which is the question you're holding, mm-hmm. is how then shall we live? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is it that is given to us, you at 63, I at 80, mm-hmm. right? How, how can we continue to contribute? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a sense that this renewed friendship of ours and the deep resonance that I think we feel for mm-hmm. each other, mm-hmm. that there may be, there may be clues, mm-hmm. there may be intimations of what is possible. Um, And all I can say is that um, I hope we do that. Mm -hmm. I hope we do that together. And I am so grateful to you for coming to be with us at the new school at Omega at Commonweal. And just look forward to being surprised. I am too very grateful for this conversation because It's a rare conversation to have with anybody and uh, for your desire and the time Mm. you spent on exploring this conversation, Mm. which is actually uh, gives me a lot of feeling of solidarity and uh, also the confidence to think on further on this path. Thank you. Thank you for that. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Ravi Agarwal and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.